So literally we have this planned out. <laughs> we have a 10 year plan and in 10 year plan, we want to be able to deploy about $2 billion in AUM. We think it's possible to fund a lot of companies in the early stages for all emerging markets. All those emerging markets have the same problem, which is they're in this phase of rapid economic development. Tons of founders want to come out. So we want to deploy a lot of capital into seed stage companies. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leong, and the venture capital and accelerator model is undergoing a second renaissance in Southeast Asia. Today with me, I have Brian Ma, partner at Iterative Capital and founder at Divi Homes, to join me to offer his perspectives on how to bring the Silicon Valley mindset and operating model into Southeast Asia. Truth be told, my first encounter with Iterative is through an angel investment with the XA Network, Coder School, and recently, my wife's startup, SFL, which I'm also an investor in, is now in their winter cohort. So now with all the disclosures out of the way, Brian, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I think the first thing I wanted to start off is that you are currently based in Seattle and you're probably going to be coming to Southeast Asia very, very soon. I want to start off by hearing the origin story. How do you start your career? Yeah, definitely. I'm actually based in San Francisco, but I travel a lot to Seattle. So my career started in Seattle. So I was one of the super, super nerdy kids growing up. I ended up picking me out of high school. So I never went to high school. And then I went straight into UW, the University of Washington, and then got a computer science degree there. After graduating, I was 18. And so just super, super young. I think the interesting thing for me is I kind of entered into work maybe three, four years before other people did. And so part of me was, hey, I can take way more risks than other people. Ended up joining Zillow on their pre-launch product. And so that was my path into startups. Zillow now is clearly a unicorn company. When we started, it was, I was number 25 there. And so I don't know if I learned everything, but I learned a lot uh, about startups doing that. Fast forward, I'm just going to go really quickly. <laughs> Fast forward now, kind of 15 years, I ended up doing uh, three startups. So the first one was Decide, worked on that for five years. We ended up raising about $16 million in venture capital, which at that point was a lot of money. This is in 2005, I think. And that was acquired by eBay. I learned a lot of lessons there. Ended up moving to San Francisco from Seattle because eBay's headquarters down there. Started another company, went through YC with that one. Raised another $3 for that. Didn't go as far as I wanted for that one. And so did a quick asset sale for it. And then the third company, Divi, is now a $2 billion company. So that one just went really, really quickly. Happy to talk through all of those. But when I think about myself, I think about myself way more as a founder than an investor. And of course, I have to add iterative to the mix as well. But given mm. that you have been a co-founder of these various startups, I mean, Decide.com acquired by eBay, you have the Weave Networking and then subsequently DV Homes. What are the common threads that you can draw in how you think about starting up and building these companies? I guess DV Homes is the most interesting one because you build it to a $2 billion enterprise. It, it was definitely the hardest one. <laughs> Everything is interesting. It was definitely the hardest one. I think maybe, I mean, there were a ton of lessons. It's been 15 years of building. So lots and lots of lessons. But I think general high level stuff here is 
building a company is just really, really hard. Uh, and so you end up building all these frameworks and mechanisms to basically go through your day in terms of how you react to these rapid changes in the environment. So I think the thing that's resonated the most with us and which is why we named our venture fund iterative is you just never know what happens. <laughs> and so the best thing you can do for yourself as a founder is to be really thoughtful when things come up and take the inputs, think about things, be super strategic, and then plot your next path uh, moving forward. And so I think I did that poorly in the first few companies and I'm doing it slightly better now. And so iterating quickly, getting feedback really quickly, and then navigating is, I think, a skill that most founders need to have. And then maybe the second thing that I think helps a lot with founders is just being really close to your customer is really important. This is one of those things that's been talked about a lot in startup land, but it's so real, right? If you're trying to solve a problem that's not yours, most of the time it's very hard for you to be able to navigate or figure out what the next right next move is because you just don't really understand the problem that well. And so again, just having a consistent method or system to constantly be talking with your users is important. I'm happy to go into like each one of those, mm. but... I want to get into that part on iterative quickly. I guess in the different companies, you've learned the different scaling at different stages, right? And you actually iterate on top of that. But sometimes scaling might require you to take a step back and step forward. So how do you make those decisions in terms of thinking about that? The way I think about it is how do we run experiments at scale? Or how do we, first, how do you run experiments quickly? And then after that, how do you run experiments at scale? Right. So in the very early days, you don't have that many people. You probably have at most two to seven. Right. And so the thing that you can do best for yourself is just run experiments quickly. There's a lot of ways to do this. A lot of kind of like, what is the experiment? How do you decrease scope? How long should it take? Should I even build anything? Am I just asking customers? But the thing you should be thinking about is what is it that I want to go validate? What's the hypothesis? And then how do I go about getting that really quickly? So the thing that we think about a lot with companies is we run a 14-week program. So in 14 weeks, how many experiments can you run? Can you run three because it's one per month? Or can we make it six? Are we able to make it 12? Because you can just learn that much quicker and allow you to kind of like navigate easier. So designing those experiments is really important. To your second point there, the next question after you figure out how to do this well is to then scale it, right? And the way I think about it the most is... The easiest thing to do to scale experiments is to scale number of people running experiments, right? So <laughs> typically companies grow at a cumulative pace, right? You'll have seven people. The next seven people basically allows you to run two things at the same time. And then once you get to 21 people, right, then you have three experiments and then it cumulatively scales because everyone can run experiments in the org. And so the trick here is one, being really good at designing experiments, and then two, being really good at prioritizing what are the things that actually needs to be validated. I don't know if that was helpful. <laughs> no, that was very, very helpful in terms of thinking about how to scale a company. But I guess coming back personally for yourself, being 15 years in the startup world, what are the interesting career lessons you can share with my audience? I don't know. Okay, I don't know if this is applicable to everyone, but the biggest lesson I learned being a startup founder is you suck at everything else, right? So there were points in time when I finished my company, meaning I was acquired, I was thinking about what to do next, and uh, I went out and I tried to get jobs. 
And nobody wanted to have me because they're like, what does a founder do? They just fundraise all day and they think they're hot shots, right? And they're really not. Uh, and so it was just really hard to get a job. And so I think a non-intuitive thing is as a founder, the more you're in it, the more you can't do anything else. And so that was one big, I don't know, career lesson. The other big career lesson, I think for me is when you're running a big company, only two things matter. Look, the first one is being able to fundraise and articulate your vision in such a way that uh, like investors want to get on board. You never want to like run out of money. And the second thing that matters is aligning people. Once you've figured out product market fit, your skill set almost immediately changes and you have to figure out how to be a very good CEO and a very good people not people person, but align everyone into the same vision. And so that's typically the hardest change in a founder's career and takes a lot of work to figure out how to do it well. So I, I think you squeeze the word aligning and that when you're aligning people also includes the hiring, the motivating, building the culture as well, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's all of those things combined. So I come to the main subject of the day, which is iterative capital and how do you build this into the entrepreneurial ecosystem in Southeast Asia? So the first question I probably ask is you're in the Bay Area, you know, you have the Silicon Valley mindset and you decided to transport it over into another region within Asia Pacific itself. So what is the inspiration behind iterative capital and why have you get your investment thesis to the Southeast Asia region? I think a lot of iterative just doing it has been me and Suken, my partner, thinking about what we want to do in the long term with our lives. <laughs> and that resonates with both of us is we just didn't feel we had that much support when we started our companies. So we were in Seattle, right? It was 2005. Nobody in Seattle starts companies. And we just made so many stupid mistakes that would take multiple weeks. Right, we would do stupid things for two or three or four weeks and then realize that was stupid, but nobody told us. And so I just felt like we wasted a lot of time. And so I feel like that's what's happening in Southeast Asia now. The Bay Area has this really strong community of other founders. You go off to, I don't know, any random coffee shop and you just can't stop yourself from eavesdropping on everyone and what they're learning, right? In Southeast Asia, you have to actively go find other people who are strong founders to get support. And so part of what we're trying to do here is to build a very, very strong community where founders can rely on each other for support. So number one for us is building community. And then two, I think it's just really fulfilling for us because we feel like we're helping ourselves from kind of like 15 years ago. So that's the goal. Obviously, the third goal is to make people lots of money and to build massive, massive companies, but that's uh, secondary. Mm. Very honest here. So how did you actually assemble the initial team to set up Iterative in Southeast Asia? Yeah. I mean, the initial team was so easy. It was just me and Zuka. So, <laughs> so Zuka and I have been co-founders for the first company and the second company. We work really well together, very high trust. We've both been uh, built giant companies. So it was just easy. With both of us, we just really love helping founders. And so it didn't feel like a job and we just worked 24-7 six days a week, usually, sometimes seven. And so that's how we got started. After, I feel we were able to handle a lot until maybe a year in or a year and a half in when the cohort size started to scale. 
And so then we just ended up doing our standard thing, right? Which, hey, what are we trying to do within this quarter? We just do quarterly plan- planning. So what are we trying to do this quarter? Do OKRs. What are the things that we want to do? How many people do we need to do these things? And then started just hiring. I think maybe one thing that's interesting about how we think about building a venture fund is I have no clue how to build a venture fund, but I know how to build a company. <laughs> so all we think about is it's the same thing. We're just applying company building to venture fund building. And so all the same thing applies. It's interesting also because you started your first cohort at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. So the way you set up this venture fund is probably a little bit different as well, right? Totally. And I think that's actually a pretty interesting story because we started literally around a month or two before like the entire world shut down. Initially, the idea was come to Singapore, have some space, like get a bunch of people together, fly them in, et cetera, and then the world shut down. So we had to very rapidly go remote. It turns out it's actually much better. And I think the reason why is because companies end up at, even at the early stages that we invest in, are fairly large already, right? So you're, you have four or five people, sometimes up to 12. You're in some country that's not Singapore. You're in Philippines or Vietnam or Indonesia. It doesn't make any sense to pluck the founders out from their team to come to Singapore to hang out with us. And so one, the remote situation allowed us to get way more deal flow. Companies wanted to talk to us. Two, the companies could stay where they are. We were able to do back-to-back meetings to kind of help them out. And then three, I think it allowed me to stay in the US quite a bit more, which allowed me to find mentors for everyone to build their companies. And also you don't need to lease office space as well. I think one of the biggest costs is actually that and making that change also changed the way how you fundamentally build a remote first accelerator, if you can think of it that way too. Yeah, totally. Mm. So I, I think the interesting part is then the sourcing, right? What are the leading indicators that your team index in both founders and their startups? I actually feel we, I don't know if we messed up in the early beginning, we just didn't have any strong opinions, right? So in the very beginning, what we ended up saying was a third of it is the founder, a third of it is the market, right? The TAM, and a third of it is your product. And that's how we talked about the world. It turns out at our stage, that's totally not true uh, because I think it's it really is 80, 85% the founder and then 15% something else. Typically, what tends to happen is your product will slightly change, maybe even the person you're selling to changes. And what we think is a winning criteria is just, again, a a founder that can navigate. That's our term that we use. So maybe I can break that down a little bit. What we look for is we look for strong founders and founders that can navigate. For us, that's three things. The first thing is they have to have a very clear vision of where they're going. It usually tends to be ways for them to be really, really close to the customer. And you can tell, right, when you go talk to a founder to really dig in on whether they can understand the customer problem or not. I think any, just even when you're not a VC, you'll understand if someone really understands dating or I don't know, hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. So that's number one. The number two thing is, can they strategically break down the steps that they need to do to lead to that vision for whatever they, they, they think the world is going to be? And the number three is their ability to execute or their bias towards action. There's a lot of people who super overanalyze everything and actually don't execute anything. And that tends to be hard. Maybe one thing that's like always in my head that's interesting to share with your listeners is the way I think about it is, would you want this person to be your navigator when you're doing a road trip? 
right? So let's say you're okay, cool. You're in, I'm in the US, right? So it's, you're, you're going from San Francisco to New York. And let's say we generally have alignment that we're going to New York. It's a really far road trip and you just don't know what's going to happen, right? There's, there's snow on passes. That's going to be locked. You have to re-navigate. Sometimes you'll get hungry. Maybe you don't want to go to certain restaurants. You want to go to other restaurants. Do you trust this person to be able to rethink certain parts of the paths when things come up and still get you to New York in, with some time constraints? And so that's the type of thing that we look for in, in founders. I, if I reverse that question, then what are the yeah. red flags that you will look for not to invest? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great question. Uh, <laughs> I mean, okay, the super obvious one, because we've run into this, is founders that just lie. I have no clue why this happens. But I think a lot of, there's still this perception that founders can, should like fake it until they make it. And it's, you can tell. So we have, we've had multiple interviews where they're not really full-time. They're really working on a part-time. They're not as close to their co-founder as it seems because we do reference checks. They show us some metrics and the metrics aren't actually what they are because we look it up in the background. Uh, we've asked other people about it. And so just lying is the first, don't lie. <laughs> uh, that one's too obvious though. I think the, the biggest non-obvious red flags is founders who just lack insight and this often happens because they see something else work and they're like, okay, let me just copy and paste, right? So maybe, I don't know, Instagram works. Maybe we should build the Instagram of Indonesia or something, right? Or Tinder works. We should build Tinder for, I don't know, Philippines. And the it's totally fine to want to do that for a country or a sector. But the thing that you're looking for is the whys, right? Why isn't the Instagram of Indonesia just Instagram? What is interesting about it? What's the, I don't know, what's different about the demographic, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think this happens way more than <laughs> most people think. And it is a red flag. Uh, if I read it correctly, is it that what is the one thing you know that others don't know when yeah. they navigate yeah. you in this region? Exactly. Exactly. Companies that don't have this interesting insight are just, it's just hard mm. to build a company off them. So what are the key categories or industry verticals that you typically invest in? So iterative is super agnostic. So there's not one thing we focus on. I think the way to think about it is everyone who, we have a bunch of venture partners, right? And so we have expertise in every area and certain people like certain things more than others. So just because I build a prop tech company, I'll look at all the prop tech and FinTech stuff. So you can look at a bunch of marketplaces, uh, et cetera. So there's stuff we'd like, but we invest in everything. The one interesting thing here is I feel like you have to invest in everything in the earliest stages because the kind of like pros of doing this is a lot of times the things that kind of take off are very hard to predict. If you look at our cohorts over time, we had one cohort that was pretty strong logistic companies. We have a cohort that was pretty strong educational ed tech companies. And these trends take off at, I wouldn't call it random times, but at times you just don't realize. And so the good thing about being fairly agnostic is you're, you're able to follow these trends and see what are the interesting new things that founders are working on. Mm. So if I understand also correctly that iterative capital, it operates both as an accelerator and a venture capital fund for startups in the region, right? Yeah, that's right. It looks like that, but really it's just a venture fund, right? So we have a pool of capital and then we have to deploy that capital into a bunch of seed stage companies. 
the accelerator is really our way to help. And so there's no separate entity or anything. It's just, yeah, go ahead. It, it, it kind of is becoming interesting to me because it seems like, I mean, there was a plethora of accelerators during, I think, the 2014 to the 2017 stage. And it's bumped up a lot by because of the uh, existence of government funding. But it seems to settle down to the point now that if I were to look at the model across Asia Pacific, and I spoke to some of them, like, for example, uh, Jamie Lim from AppWorks as well. Mm-hmm. It seems that the best model is to have a venture fund behind the accelerator because then you can actually go a few rounds more and you also have that landscape of being early as well within the region. You've probably spoken to more of these experts than I have. I think um, building an accelerator in 2014 without having a fund attached was difficult because you didn't get the returns. You didn't have a lot of exits early especially if the ecosystem was early and then you didn't get the returns and usually your returns help you recycle the fund into continuing your accelerator. And so, I mean, what you'll typically see, and you saw this in YC early days, right, is if you're really making good bets in companies in your first one or two cohorts, those companies will exit, you'll have a secondary, you get a tranche of money, you'll reinvest it into your accelerator and it compounds. I think YC saw that I want to say a bunch of their early money came from like secondaries and Airbnb or Stripe or something. And then that allowed them to not even need to raise additional capital to continue the accelerator. And so that's what we're doing. I guess that's the flywheel effect that allows you to multiply when you have that whole feeder system itself. Um, yeah. How's the day-to-day? How do you work with startups and what's the process to help them to prepare for the demo day? I know it's 14 weeks, as you mentioned earlier. So what do they do? <laughs> So for 14 weeks, we just kick their butts a lot. (laughs) So broadly, what we try to do is we separate the 14 weeks into basically three months, right? Month one, month two, month three. Month one typically is quarterly planning, right? It's what are we trying to do in the next three months? Um, What are our goals? What are our KPIs? And then we map out every single week this path into getting to hit all these KPIs. And then we also talk about what our biggest risks or factors or levers to try to grow during the the month. In month two, we introduce experts, right? So we have right now about 70 different experts, which are all our friends who all operate companies. And then for any particular company, typically we try to work on the most important something that will help you unlock growth. So to throw some examples out there for TendoPay, which was a buy now, pay later company, uh, ended up helping with debt financing. Sometimes we help people with products. Sometimes we help people with new acquisition channels or figuring out which acquisition channels work the best for them. And so that's kind of month two. Uh, month three, which is where uh, the cohort, the current cohort is at now is fundraising bootcamp. So fundraising is one of those really funny things, right? Where it's, it's really, really brutal and really hard. And no one's taught you this before. <laughs> and so we help founders figure out what their narratives are, figure out how to best tell the story of their companies to investors. And then we put together Demo Day where last time 350 investors came to fund the companies. So that's Mm. the gist of the program. So you have started the first cohort in summer 2020 and then ran about four cohorts until now. I guess what are the highlights for Iterative and what have you achieved so far? I don't know how much your listeners are VCs, but we've had just a lot. (laughs) Okay, great. (laughs) Amazing. And LPs as well. And LPs. Okay, great, great. Okay, so maybe I'll start with amazing financial returns, right? So we ended up being 
lucky. We ended up helping quite a bit. And so all our companies are doing really well. Maybe just to throw a couple out there, Spenmo, we were very, very early. They were funded by Insight and Tiger. Ekaterina helped them pivot into the, they rode the Axie craze, right? And so they're a play to earn company, crypto company, rode the Axie craze. They're also doing extremely well. So there was a lot of companies in the early days that just rocket shipped into, I don't know, just rocket shipped, generated really good returns for us. So I think just as a VC, those were highlights. As a founder, though, I think the biggest highlight for me in the past two years is the community. And so in the early days, we had community as the number one thing we wanted to build, which is I want every founder to come in to feel they're not alone in this journey. And the way that we've seen this flywheel is everyone's on Slack. Within like a couple hours, whatever question you ask, someone will jump in and answer it, whether it's really minutia around market playbooks or licensing or something. And then they'll come in and they'll offer intros. And I think maybe thing that is really fulfilling to me is we're super transparent. And even when a company, when a founder is really struggling, about to fail, et cetera, that's, I don't know if celebrated is the word, but it's everyone is super supportive of the founder's next move. And so, yeah, I, I think I'm most proud of the community that we've built around entrepreneurship. So. Hmm. So what did not work out so well for Iterative Capital and or maybe the other way to ask the question is what could you have done differently? Yeah, it's funny because we hit ourselves all the time <laughs> on this, which is I think we just didn't scale fast enough and it wasn't scaling of the cohort, it's scaling of us, right? So it was me and Sukan for like a really long time and we delayed scaling, visiting partners, partners, venture partners, internal help operations, et cetera, because we just really wanted the, the program to be great. <laughs> and so it took us a long time. I feel like maybe two cohorts, two and a half cohorts for us to feel like, okay, cool. We kind of know how to do this before we're like, okay, now let's uh, hire in people. Let's delegate a bunch of stuff and then grow. And so we're feeling the growing pains now where we're rapidly trying to hire people to grow the actual internal iterative processes, et cetera. And so if I could rewind the clock, I would have done that much sooner. So what distinguishes iterative capital from maybe the other accelerators in the market? I think venture firms wise, I think it's pretty clear that, that you are part of the ecosystem, uh, even in the XA network, we have done a couple of Spanmo, for example, they've done investments with you. And also the, I actually heard from different emerging VCs that you have a very strong reputation now, given that you only did four batches of cohorts within the ecosystem itself. So uh, what makes you different? <laughs> They're very kind. I think the thing that makes us different is we're all, we've all built companies. We're all operators. Right. And when you look at the people that we bring in, literally they're running their companies right now and they're also struggling. They're trying to figure out how to grow, but then they spend their Saturdays and evenings to help one of our founders out. And so I feel like this is like obvious to founders, but maybe not so obvious to the broader community. When you go talk to another founder, all of a sudden, like all your walls go away and you're just in problem solving mode. So when a founder comes to us and brings us problems, we're like, hey, we've done this before. Here's our experience. If I was in your situation, I might think about doing this. It's your company. You run it however you want. Here's my opinion. If you want, here's two other friends I have that have gone through similar things. You can ask them to come back. We can help triangulate what a good solution is for you. And so you get much more personalized feedback on exactly what your company needs to do at a particular point. And I think that's the thing that resonates 
the most uh, with companies. Mm. I, I have another question, and I think this is more of thinking about the operating model as well. So I think we also see a lot of more and more Southeast Asia startups going to Y Combinator in Silicon Valley, actually going through remote work. I think it's the last cohort was about 16% from the region. I think one thing that happens to these companies is they actually end up getting what I call the valuation premium from local venture capital firms. My question is not so much about what's the difference between YC and Interactive, because you, are, you yourself is also part of the YC community and you have seen how they operated as well. What do you think about the ongoing change in the accelerator and venture capital landscape as these things are also changing because of the possibility of dealing with remote? It doesn't matter whether, you know, whether they, have, they can be locally here or they can be going to the US as well. Yeah, that's such a great question. I think the way that I would I think about it is, and maybe I'm biased too because I'm part of YC, right? <laughs> and then quite a few partners of my friends. So I subscribe to YC's worldview, right? Which is the more entrepreneurs and founders there are, the better. And that goes similarly with accelerators. So every time someone's, hey, I'm increasing my check size, I'm building an accelerator, I'm going to help founders. I'm, yes, let's do it. <laughs> the world needs more of this. And so I think what's going to happen is because we're now in this remote world, you have access to more startups, you have access to more founders, founders have access to more knowledge. And so naturally the market's just bigger. And so it's good uh, that there's more accelerators. On the flip side, I think what's naturally happening right now is um, YC is great because they give you great signaling, meaning someone picked you, you ended up going through an accelerator, which is top tier, tier one accelerator. And then literally all of the investor eyeballs are on you during demo day. Um, I go to every single demo day, there's, I don't know, thousands of, of uh, investors, right? And so you're getting this pop because all of a sudden, all this money and eyeballs are looking at your company. What I think is happening, though, is the actual, I wouldn't say value-end, but the operational know-how is now a little bit diluted, right? So a typical company that's one of hundreds coming through YC won't get that much time with a partner. A partner is probably working with 80 to 100 companies within that three-month period. And so you don't see trajectory changing companies anymore, right? Rarely does a company come in, something happens. And then they're like, okay, cool. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to change to do, do something else. And so what's happening with YC, I think, is companies that are coming in that are fairly good will become great. Companies that are mediocre continue to be mediocre. Companies that are bad continue to be not that great. And so YC really is exactly what it is, is it's accelerating your existing trajectory for your company. So yes, it's great. You should totally do YC. Just I think what's going to end up happening is if you want... If you're pre-product market fit a little bit and you want more localized help or maybe localized know-hows, how do you do things differently in your market, in your sector, et cetera, you'll see all these kind of interesting cutoffs of YC, right? So work YC, regional, there's YC in LATM, there's YC for Web3 companies now. And so you'll see specialization in the next kind of like couple few years. Mm. Given you have done four cohorts, you probably can have some idea about founders in Southeast Asia. What's the difference between them versus the Valley? Just as smart, hustle just as much. I think the only difference, honestly, is access to everything, right? In the Valley, it's much easier to access talent. And so you just have talent everywhere. In the Valley, it's much easier to access learnings because everyone else is rapidly learning around you. 
in the Valley, it's much easier to access community again, right? Because everyone has some CEO group or some early stage group or a hardware group or something. And so those things are just easier. Southeast Asia founders are the same as every other founder, but they just don't have as much access to all these things. And so it makes the job slightly harder. And that's the thing that we want to change, right? Is we want to give access to knowledge, to founders, to community, to networks, et cetera. Yeah, so yeah, if you're looking at founders, I think basically. So I'm going to ask this question in a, in a different way. So unlike the US market, geographic expansion is not a simple exercise in mm. because yep. infrastructures from payments to logistics differ from country to country in Southeast Asia. I mean, Singapore is a super advanced economy, but everywhere around them, maybe the, with the exception of the main cities, Jakarta and Kuala Lumpur, even Manila, everywhere else is like an emerging market or even frontier market as well. So what will be the playbook to help startups to expand across the region then? This is now very tactical advice. <laughs> With geographic expansion, I think the secret is you have to find these market managers, these country managers. And they, they're rare. Some of them are, people are really good. And what they've done is they've helped other people expand into local markets. They have localized knowledge about localization, cultures, religion, all this stuff. So I think it's a hack to get you into these places. Maybe I'll back up a little bit and I'll say I 100% agree, right? In Southeast Asia, the market expansion piece is just like, you have to think about it pre-A or maybe even pre-Seed. In the US, you don't. And so almost immediately you're like, what is my market expansion strategy? How do I go about to, I don't know, localizing, figuring out licensing, all this stuff. And so it's important from the get-go. So yeah, not a simple exercise. And maybe kind of like the tie-in here is that's again, why this community building piece is really important. All of our FinTech founders, we'll talk to all of our other FinTech founders and all the other founders that I help in FinTech, right? <laughs> to be like, how do you deal with MAS, right? In this very particular thing, right? how do you deal with no regulations in Indonesia? Is that, I don't know, is that a thing? Or how do you deal with that? This is a very, I don't know, I didn't realize this was a problem until I looked into it. In Indonesia, there's very, very bad geolocations, right? So logistics is really hot, but like, you really don't know when someone orders something, you really don't know where to actually deliver it. You might be like, not, not just a couple blocks off, you might be 10 blocks off, or like miles off, right? And so founders will share how they did it. They might sometimes even share data or code to increase accuracy of all these things. And so the answer for me is community. Okay. My last question before we go into the closing, what does great look like for iterative capital? So literally we have this planned out. <laughs> we have a 10 year plan and in 10 year plan, we want to be able to deploy about $2 billion in AUM. We think it's possible to fund a lot of companies in the early stages for all emerging markets. And so that looks like Southeast Asia. That might also look like maybe India, maybe like the Middle East, maybe Latin, et cetera. All those emerging markets have the same problem, right? Which is they're in this phase of rapid economic development, tons of founders want to come out, founders don't have the support that they need, et cetera, et cetera. So we want to deploy a lot of capital into seed stage companies. Another way that we've thought about this is every single batch, we run two batches a year, should build at least one or two unicorns. And so for us, it's creating, three to four unicorns every single year from the money that we deploy. And so the reason why this is really exciting for us, less so the financial gains, but more so, I think it's the impact that you make, 
uh, in each of these economies to increase people's access to money, right? Access to the economy, access to services, et cetera. And so really feels one of those kind of, I don't know, impact driven missions for us. So Brian, many thanks for coming on the show. I think this is not going to be the first conversation. It's probably there will be more to come, maybe even with your co-founders who can at some point as well. So in closing, I've got two questions. Question number one, any recommendations that have inspired you recently? Let's see. I don't read a lot and I don't look at a lot of stuff. I literally, what I'm spending my Saturdays doing now is crypto things. <laughs> and so... All, all right now, all crypto things, DAOs, tooling, I don't know, DeFi is just very inspiring for me. And the only resource I have here is random Discord channels, right? Random Discord channels. <laughs> so that's me right now. I don't know if people are looking for resources. Uh, YC has great resources. I tend, what I tend to do is I look at great unicorn founders and I just listen to their their podcasts or their talks. And so those are good for books. I literally have it on my desk right now. I really like Elod's book, High Growth Handbook, because it's reference material. And so if you haven't checked it out, please do. How do my audience find you? I'm everywhere online. So Twitter is really good. You can DM me. It's at Zealous Tiger. You can get me on LinkedIn. Just connect. I usually connect with everyone who looks like they're changing the world. Uh, <laughs> and then my e you can feel free to email me too. It's just brian at iterative.vc. And you can definitely find us on any podcast platform. Just tweet to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. My only one request, please upvote us on iTunes for five-star ratings or leave us a comment. Brian, once again, thank you for coming on the show and I look forward to speak to you soon. Thank you. It's great to be here.